John Roderick. We speak to you from our present, which we can only assume is your distant past, the turbulent time that was the early 21st century. Fearing the great cataclysm that will surely befall our civilization, we began this monumental reference of strange and obscure human knowledge. These recordings represent our attempt to compile and preserve wonders and esoterica that would otherwise be lost. So whether you're listening from an advanced civilization or have just reinvented the technology to decrypt our transmissions, this is our legacy to you. This is our time capsule. This is the Omnibus. have accessed entry 688.LK1734, certificate number 39087, William Rufus King. Well, there you have it, as I have heard said. Men were angels and no government would be necessary. <laughs> well, sadly, that is very well said. Uh, but there can be no question, our nation cannot bind together without powerful central government. But we must also accommodate the needs of our constituent states, both North and South. We are, I think, on the record, John, that we record this show at an undisclosed subterranean location. That's right. In the, in somewhere in the Cascade Mountains. Everyone knows. Although our listeners have found the vault, they know where the location is. Well, or, I mean, we, we have no idea about our own future, right? So there may come a time before the apocalypse or during the apocalypse that we either disseminate these recordings, like with a t-shirt cannon, except shooting out little metallic spores, or we bury them all around the world. We don't know where. We could drop flash drives from an array of satellites. That's right. And everyone knows that flash drives are the stablest platform for uh, recording digital material. That's exactly what everyone in the indefinite future is going to be using. Yeah. They're like, oh, this flash drive is 4,200 years old. Just like today, if you were to find like a Sumerian pottery shard, you'd be like, yeah, let me just plug this into the shard port on my laptop <laughs> so, I can, so I can read this. But despite the fact that we are right now at an undisclosed location in the Cascades, you and I both live in King County, mm -hmm. Washington. That's right. King County named for, do you know this? Well, I actually do. Unfortunately, I am this exact kind of pedant because uh, pedant. I- Pedant. Pedant. A, fr a French, pedant. an irritating French person. <laughs> uh, because I remember when King County was renamed in honor of the Reverend Martin Luther King. Right. And so during that period... Renamed, but it's the renamed the same name. Renamed the same name. But prior to that, it was named for American Vice President William Rufus King. King County predates the state of Washington. We were actually Oregon Territory still in 1853 when King County was formed. You know, a region called King County was named. Isn't that fascinating? Yeah. And in 1985, it was decided that maybe our progressive city should not be named for slaveholder William Rufus King. And so they renamed, in quotes, the uh -huh. county for Martin Luther King. 
Interestingly, the state did not recognize that until 2005. What? So, so there was a 20-year period where King County thought it was named for Martin Luther King, and the state of Washington was sure it was named for slave owner William Rufus King. That's that's really unusual. I did not know that. So Washington statehood didn't come until 1889. So King County was formed in 1853, you're saying? Yes, the year after the untimely death of William Rufus King. The, the only time you would name a whole county for a uh-huh. obscure U.S. vice president the year <laughs> after his untimely death. Right, of course, um, at, dur- during a period when that area was just unmarked territory. Who cares? <laughs> there will certainly not be a big cement baseball stadium here named for this guy. Because the, king- the kingdom, sure. which, which we kingdom. blew up, was named for William Rufus King until it wasn't. So for 35 years, King County predates the state of Washington. I, uh, that's a, that is a very interesting fact. The, uh, I assume it didn't have the same boundaries. I mean... I don't know when they drew county lines. Well, so the eastern boundary of King County is the summit of the Cascade Mountains, and the western boundary is the ocean. It's like our own little continental divide. Right. So it would just be a question of the northern and southern boundaries, and I I imagine they are the same because you're just – those boundaries are just straight lines. They don't follow any geographic feature. They're just like – But there was no Linwood. There was no, there was no great mall of Linwood. No, what is, oh, Alderwood Mall. There was no Alderwood Mall. We have been told, by the way, recently that on our episode about Moldova, we neglected to mention the name of the biggest shopping center in Kisinau, the capital of Moldova, which, which is. Which is called Moldova. Moldova. <laughs> True fact. So good. Uh, the, uh, it really is best case scenario if you find that your county is named for a slave owner. Apparently, what you need to do is do what Washington did and just hope that a beloved progressive leader will arise with the same surname yeah. as your discredited figure and yeah. make everything okay again. Yeah, pretty good. Uh, pretty, because that was it was renamed King County during an era where things were being renamed for Martin Luther King across the country. Right. Including Empire Way here in our own Seattle. Uh, long before we renamed the county, Empire Way, which used to be the big road out of town before the freeways were built. Um, was renamed Martin Luther King Boulevard. You keep saying renamed, but it's not renamed at all. It's not renamed. You're absolutely right. It was. It was just same name. Re yeah, same name. We don't we Let's don't have a, that. we don't have a word for <laughs> what happens named. when you leave the name the same but decide that it re- references a different thing. Could I do that? I'm named for my dad, but could I decide at some point in my life? No, you know, I'm actually named Ken after documentarian Ken Burns, hmm. whose sepia-toned works I much admire. But no one would have known. Ken Burns is not that much older than you. I, I would think it more likely that you were named for Barbie's consort. Well, yeah, but King County could not be named for Martin Luther King either. It's oh, literally... True, true, true. It takes place 100 years before he first <laughs> took the pulpit. <laughs> true. Okay, sure. You're, uh, uh, let's, let's make that official right now. You are hereby renamed for Ken Burns. Uh, yeah, a lot of people don't know that about me. You're same-named. You're same-named for Ken Burns. I was trying to think of a younger... Example in Ken Burns, like a young hip Ken. And of course, there are no there young aren't. People stop naming people Kens. Ken right after you were born. I was the last Kenneth. one. What is the frequency? <laughs> I get asked that uh-huh. so <laughs> often. John Nance Garner, the vice president under FDR. No segue there, by the way. That's good. That was good. That was tight. <laughs> uh, once famously called the U.S. vice presidency, his own job, uh, you know, not worth a bucket of warm spit. Mm-hmm. And I assume, do you assume this? I assume he said warm piss and history cleaned it up. I bet that's right. Although maybe, spit is warm. maybe a bucket of warm spit was kind of a coinage at the time and people were using it all the time. It seems like it was a time in our nation's history where it was coming to the close of an era when there were both buckets of warm spit and buckets of warm piss in public life. Yep. You'd have the warm spit 
uh, in the lobby of your hotel or whatever. Right, in a spittoon. A cuspidor. Which is mixed with tobacco juice. Uh, and you would ha- might have a bucket of warm piss in your morning every night when you woke up or, or out back in the outhouse. In the form of a bedpan. Sure. Or uh, what was, there were other, like a night, like a night they, they, they used to call it, when you would poop at night, they would call it night soil. Night soil. Which sounds so nice. That is nice. It's like what you, it's like your compost heap or it's where your, your fishing worms live. Well, I think people in our own day don't realize how profane people in the past were because they weren't profane in a lot of their literature or public pronouncements, but they were truly potty mouth people in their time. Well, they lived closer to these realities. They didn't yeah. have a little room in their house where they could pretend that all their excrement disappeared. People who lived in one-room houses grew up uh, very close to the sexual realities of their parents' relationship. Right, right. Like, just think about Laura Ingalls Wilder and all the crazy stuff she saw. Well, and how many siblings she had. Putting the wild back in <laughs> Laura Ingalls Wilder. Because if you live in a one-room sod house in Minnesota, you, you're you going to see everything. Sure, you're going to hear it in the night <laughs> and pretend that you're not hearing it. This is the most or vivid... giggle. This is probably the most vivid podcast ever about Ma and Pa Ingalls' uh, shenanigans. <laughs> Let's save that for another episode. Charles Talk and, about the Charles and Caroline. <laughs> and so the vice presidency, just to explain to the future, is not an office that's had a lot of, uh, for a long time, the vice presidency was just a, a ticking heart. He's, mm-hmm. a, he's a walking fill-in should well, something terrible happen to the well, president. Well, in fact, in the early days of the United States, there was no provision for the vice president to fill the seat of the presidency in the event of his death. That was not encoded in the, in the job. And even weirder, uh, the president, vice president did not choose to run together for, uh, you know, until the Adams-Jefferson rivalry changed the game, the vice president was the runner-up. The runner-up. So your your backup as president was the guy you had defeated in the election, and somebody realized this was, you know, a motivation for murder straight out of a, <laughs> a, a Roman tragedy or an Agatha Christie novel. And they quickly, quickly uh, rewrote that before some future Miller Fillmore just killed Zachary Taylor, you know, in a power play. Right. Poisoned his uh, night soil. <laughs> I don't know if you could kill someone by poisoning their night soil. In, uh, William Rufus King was born in 1786 in North Carolina. Mm-hmm. He went to the University of North Carolina in its, wow, very early days, mm-hmm. you know, around 1805 or 1810. So basketball coach Dean Smith would have been in his earliest years. Right. It, was, it would have been still mostly an agricultural school. Right. Yeah. At that time, the final four was just four teams. There were only four schools. <laughs> William and Mary again. He went to law school and hung out a shingle in Fayetteville, North Carolina. From and my recollection is that he's he's a, the classic example of someone who studied the law as an apprentice rather than... Isn't that crazy how you yeah, could do that? Yeah. My, my great-grandfather was a justice of the peace who just learned the law by working in a law firm. Self-taught justice of the peace. That's yeah. who you want. King uh, began his political career at that point, served in the House of Representatives. Oh, he, yeah, he served in the North... Carolina, whatever they had, the House of Commons or Burgesses mm-hmm. or Tar Heels. Mm-hmm. The House of Tar Heels. The House of Tar Heels. <laughs> there's, there's two houses. <laughs> Which is now a steakhouse in uh, Durham, <laughs> Raleigh. Uh, then he served in the U.S. House. He was uh, very excited to become uh, a delegate. He served overseas. He got to travel to Russia and to the, I love this, the Kingdom of the Two Sicilies. Oh, sure. As Italy was then called. Sure. I actually looked it up. There, The reason why it was the Two Sicilies, do you know this? No. Because in our time, Sicily is an island. It's hard to see how there could be two of them. Right. There's a very complicated thing where uh, the kingdom of Naples, the southern part of the boot, was once part of the kingdom of Sicily. There was a whole back and forth between the Normans and the Aragons in which the French and the Spanish variously conquered Sicily. 
And so when Sicily bailed on the kingdom of Naples, uh, Naples was also at the time still yeah, called Sicily. It was, like, it was like China breaking up, as we've discussed in a previous mm-hmm. kind of, with both the mainland and the island claiming to be the, the true Sicily. successor state to the kingdom of Sicily. <laughs> and when they reunited eventually, they were now the kingdom of the two. It's like meiosis for Sicilies. You know, one Sicily just asexually reproduces into two. <laughs> it sure turns out that William Rufus's king life is fruitful for us to just go on all kinds of tangents unrelated to his life. Well, this was a wonderful time in American history where we were a new nation and we needed all these diplomats. We needed someone to represent us in the French court. We needed someone to go to Russia. Because it would be the first guy. Right. But there just weren't that many people in America, let alone statesmen. So you could have a job where you were like, well, I was in the legislature, but then I was minister to France. And then I because there was no career diplomats, there was no career State Department. It's just like how our country is going to be in three years. <laughs> <laughs> try, to re- try to rebuild the diplomatic corps. Well, that's why I hope that I'm still in the running for consideration as director of CIA. For, you're going to go, you want to be CIA director? You, I, don't, I, you, you don't want to go to the two Sicilies? No, I went, on, I went on Twitter the other day and threw my hat in the ring. I think I would be an incredible director of CIA. We've heard from listeners who are very impressed that you don't say the CIA. Oh, we have? Oh, good. Well, that's because I know I'm part of the culture already. They just don't realize it. That's part of the tradecraft of being a spy is you don't say the You acronym. don't say the, the CIA. CIA. It's just not how it's done. And also Ukraine. We've been complimented for not saying the Ukraine. Well, someone uh, chastised me the other day for including Finland in Scandinavia. Ah, it's a Nordic country. It's a Nordic country. Even though the northern part, the northern third of Finland is in the Scandinavian peninsula, and they use Swedish as a second official language, still not Scandinavian. Sounds like a pedant to me. I had a long conversation with this person. Or whatever the the Finnish word for pedant is, pedant. (laughs) He, uh, he, He slid into my DMs. Uh, with a bunch of hooey. He cross-country skied into your DMs. <laughs> At uh, some point around in the 1820s, I believe, William Rufus King's brother starts a plantation in Alabama where there's a land rush going on. Mm-hmm. Alabama has opened up. Alabama, not a state at the time. Right. Uh, America ends at the Georgia border. And his brother says, hey, you got to come out here, uh, rich, rich land for the Takens. William Rufus King goes out to Alabama, founds his homestead. Uh, Chestnut Hill, the nice way to say cotton plantation, where he was, I'm sure, working hundreds of people against their will into the ground. Mm -hmm. And in fact, he founded a settlement there. He was a big fan of the uh, allegedly ancient Irish poetry of Ossian, Mm -hmm. uh, which we should definitely do on a future entry. (laughs) Take note. And uh, in the poetry of Ossian, the capital city of the warrior Fingal or Finn McCool is set up on a bluff. And that reminded him of the settlement he was starting. So he decided to name this new city after this uh, mythological Irish capital, and he called it Selma. Really? Now we're getting a, we have another Martin Luther King connection. Oh, that's right. Right. Selma, where uh, where he famously marched across the bridge. I wonder if the King County Commission that renamed William Rufus King County, Martin Luther King County, was aware that they both had very different experiences in Selma, Alabama. Somehow, I doubt they did. I think this may be a historical connection that we are... We're exploring for the first time, although maybe not. So, but Alabama does become a state very soon, and he helps draft the state constitution. He becomes their first senator. So going out to a new territory becomes a a big, a great career move for this politician. Now he's not in a crowded North Carolina field 
like a new, not just a new district, but a new state has been redrawn just for him. Mm -hmm. And over the succeeding decades in the Senate, he becomes one of the most respected U.S. senators, although his name is hardly remembered today. And this is partly because it's often said, even if you go to his biography on the U.S. Senate webpage today, it remembers him not as a particular political genius or even a inspiring orator, which mm -hmm. was true of your Websters and your Calhouns and all your giants of the Senate in that day, but just that he was good at his job. Hmm. He had good judgment, mm -hmm. uh, well-liked. He knew the procedures of the Senate really well. So he was always the guy banging on about the decorum of the body. Right. Like some ineffectual Democrat today being like, how dare you hold up these nominations? You know, he was... Right. He was uh, using Robert's rules of order to their, to their best effect. That's right. Well, this was a very difficult time in the U.S. Senate. Oh, it was a very difficult time. It was a very divisive time, particularly for a Southern senator like King. Right, who is like an ardent Democrat, but also owns 500 slaves. This is what makes him such a key figure, is that he's a moderate. He's from the South, so he's buddies with John Calhoun and all these guys. He's a firm believer in states' rights. He's on the record, mm -hmm. which, you know, over the next few decades— as in our time, would would be code for a certain uh, point of view on slavery and race. Right. But at the time was really a question of- a whole bunch of issues. What America, how America is going to be governed. Sure, because every time the federal government did something in his day, every time it levied a tariff or dug a canal or uh, what else would the government do? Uh, well, tax. Sure. Issue a tax or form a national bank under right. Jackson. You know, that would be the first time that would happen. Raise a militia. And somebody from Alabama would be like, no, 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 no. Alabama creates the Bank of Alabama. You guys don't do that. Right. And so it was a question of, is America a confederation of independent nations, mm -hmm. states, or is America a federally ruled nation unto itself with states being basically counties? The United States is versus the United States are. Right. And he is, he's in an interesting position because he's a powerful senator who's a Southerner who is ardently for states' rights, but he's also this kind of pro-business Jacksonian Democrat who does not believe in secession, mm. does not believe in nullification, you know, Calhoun's theory that the states can do whatever they want no matter what the federal government does. And that gives him a lot of power. He's respected by all parties, even though the, even though the uh, Senate webpage today gives him little respect and calls him a Quotes a Columbia scholar of the 1920s is calling him a tall, prim, wig-topped mediocrity. Oh, that's harsh words. That just seems... A mediocrity. That just seems a little over the top. When it comes to meat, quality makes a huge difference in texture and taste. And even though it might be better for you and the environment, a lot of the higher quality meat you find at the grocery store is just too expensive for most people's budget. Thankfully, there's ButcherBox. ButcherBox believes everyone deserves access to high-quality, humanely sourced meat at an affordable price. That's why each month, ButcherBox ships a curated selection of the finest cuts right to your home. Choose from 100% grass-fed and finished beef, free-range organic chicken, heritage pork, wild-caught Alaskan salmon, and sugar and nitrate-free bacon. No antibiotics, no added hormones, just meat the way meat should be. And right now, you can get two pounds of ground beef and two packs of bacon absolutely free, plus $20 off your first box when you visit butcherbox.com slash iHeart or use the promo code iHeart at checkout. That's butcherbox.com slash iHeart or use the promo code iHeart at checkout. Well, I think it's really hard to assess 
people in this time in particular, because we do impose so much retroactive significance on the decisions v slavery and mm -hmm. the and the upcoming civil war that it's tough to celebrate somebody for their political acumen during a time when the quest, uh, when our modern sort of revisionist question is where did he stand on this one issue sure. that we care about now and in this particular case he was absolutely like he's an instrumental voice behind the compromise of 1850 i mean he spent decades trying to make sure that the west was safe for slavery but the union would stay together and you know from our point of view civil war would be, bloody civil war would be at least delayed right. for decades and we should talk a little about the compromise of 1850 because that's pretty important in the development of the the west and the united states do you have a short version about the compromise of 1850 uh yeah so this question of like how the north which was pretty adamantly against slavery just culturally and the south which was based entirely on a slave economy the plantation South, how these two vastly different sides of a, of a pretty enormous question were going to bound together into a single nation. And the Missouri Compromise, the famous Missouri Compromise, which happened 30 years before uh, in 1820, trying to resolve this question, admitted Maine into the Union as a free state and Missouri into the Union as a slave state. It's a bogus compromise, by the way. Like, Maine was... <laughs> Maine, there's no way Maine was going to be a slave state. Also, it's smaller than Missouri. The South really did a number on the North there. Well, and also Maine is kind of a dead end. <laughs> you don't keep going that way, whereas Missouri is right in the middle of the whole thing. Sure. But part of the Missouri Compromise said that, uh, that everything north of the 30, about the 36th parallel, slavery was going to be prohibited north of the 36th parallel implying or effectively saying that everything south of the 36th parallel would be slave territory. And that makes sense. The God, the Almighty's view of owning another person would rely on latitude for sure. Absolutely. But then fast forward uh, 30 years to 1850, and this is now being extremely complicated by the admission of Texas into the uh, Union. Ah, Texas, so big, so into slavery. Yeah. And so here comes Texas and... And then we have a Mexican, we have the, the Mexican war over Texas, uh, over the inclusion of Texas in the United States. And in winning the Mexican war, we win all this new territory, which is New Mexico and crucially California. California. And so this suggestion of uh, the Missouri Compromise was that everything south of the 36th parallel was going to be slavery, which included everything basically south of Carmel. All the new stuff. Yeah. And, you know, if you can imagine California being divided in half with the southern half being a slave territory, that's a very different version of the world. Um, it, it would be great for one of these alternate history novels where the uh, now the slave California is stealing free California's water. That's right. As per previous omnibus entries. And Hitler survives and uh, <laughs> it's a whole... I'm always suspicious of these weird Southern guys who all went to the Naval Academy and are all writing these alternate histories where what if Nazism and or slavery went a little differently? Uh, so what ends up happening in the, uh, the Compromise of 1850 is that the people of New Mexico did not want anything to do with Texas. They didn't like Texas. And also the territory there... It's Western land. It's like grazing land. It's cowboy country. They have no interest in a slave economy. It's not a plantation economy. They don't need free labor. They want open space. 
And so a lot of things went down. California was admitted as a free state. Spoilers. Sorry. <laughs> if you're if you're now living in the nation of California, which is basically like a underwater theme park. Giant statues <laughs> of Arnold Schwarzenegger peeking above the waves and uh, Walt Disney. And then part of your own history, this was right when the Utah Territory was taken from Don't pander to me, John. I'm an I'm an American. <laughs> taken from Spain. I'm not well, I'm well, not a hyphenated Mormon American. No, but but this was exactly during the period of the Mormon migration. They yes. were leaving Illinois and headed west into what would have been Mexico, but now suddenly, suddenly was the boom, United States. Utah Territory appears. So it was a crucial moment kind of in the middle uh, 19th century where the United States gained a bunch of new territory that ended up being pretty rich territory because also 1848, gold is discovered at Sutter's Mill in California. That all would have been slave gold. Slave gold. Well, no, it was it was up in San oh, Francisco. It was, oh, well, it's fine. Then. It would have been free gold. It would have been free gold, but it would have been <laughs> slave almonds or whatever down south. But this is really complicating the question of the balance between the free states and the slave states, because it was this tenuous, tenuous balance that kept us out of out of a war over slavery. But in hindsight, knowing that the war is coming anyway, maybe this all doesn't age super well, you know, like giving ground on a slave state here and a slave state there. Yeah. Ad adding millions of square miles of slavery just to put off a war a few decades. And the thing is, at the time, nobody felt like this was, like any of these compromises really were valid. Nobody liked them. But the worst thing about the Compromise of 1850 is this is when the Fugitive Slave Act was right. initiated. So all of a sudden now there is enshrined into law the idea that if your slave escapes the South, uh, there are all these ways in which they can be, they're, they're not necessarily free. Pretty ugly compromise in the end. You're a slave forever, essentially, if they can find you. If they can find you. So uh, William Rufus King is in many ways an architect of this whole situation, and it does very well for him politically. He becomes president pro tempore of the Senate. It's a big job. In our day, in our day it is not a big job. <laughs> in, you know, you got to get a lot of pills down every day. The president pro tempore is the oldest member of the party in control of the Senate. Oh, is that is that the description of the job? Yeah, today it is, and and that's by tradition. It's not that's not regulatory or constitutional. Oh, but back then it was just um. Let's vote for a good senator and make him president when the vice president's not here. Right. And everybody because the vice president him. is the is the president, president of, of the, the Senate. Senate. Today still comes in and breaks ties. Right. But the idea is he wouldn't be doing that all the time. He'd be at home with his warm piss. Right. Or spit. <laughs> right. Possibly in some versions. Night soil. <laughs> his night soil. His poisoned night soil. <laughs> <laughs> Why do they keep poisoning this? I just I just produced this last night. I'm just going to toss this in the garden. <laughs> And uh, he becomes a he, ambassador to France. He gets to spend time in France. The Senate then is very different. He, uh, well, we've talked about his love of procedure. He was he was always banging on about decorum. You know, he he would rue a time when, in his words, "quote the Senate was in no danger." Why then was it like the Italian beggar continually wounding itself for the purpose of exciting the commiseration and benevolence of the nation? So basically, he, he's not just racist against his slaves. He also dislikes Italian beggars and their fake wounds. Well, but this is right during the time when um, 
Preston Brooks beat Charles Sumner with a cane with a hickory on stick. the Senate floor. It's <laughs> the second appearance of a hickory stick in the omnibus. Uh, and in fact, yeah, so today when people bang on about how never has there been a less cordial time in the history of our legislative bodies, yeah, they're wrong by an <laughs> order of magnitude. Um, in the 18... In 1841, uh, King and his rival, Henry Clay, the leader of the Whig Party. Mm, not- I like how you pronounce it. You give me a little bit of uh, sauce for my French pronunciation of pedant. Uh, you're th- Whig. When it comes right down to it, I'm a little skeptical that you say Roderick. I feel like you mm. are maybe being a little, a, mm. you're being a little extra about your own name. Maybe. It's everyone's <laughs> right. <laughs> I'm saying Whig because uh, William Rufus King was a Whig-topped mediocrity, apparently. Oh, I see. Uh, but his rival was a literal Whig. Whig. Um, they clashed over many things, but they uh, were going to fight a literal duel in 1841 over a super contentious issue, uh, which Washington, D.C. area printer would be the official printer of the U.S. Senate. Oh, this is a big deal. You can see why two men would slap each other with gloves and... and pull out pistols at dawn over that. Sure. It had political, they'd been enemies for a long, or King and Clay had been rivals for a long time. Uh, King thought that the local uh, Democratic newspaper organ should be the printer of the Senate. Clay thought it should be the Whig paper. Um, Did this produce an actual duel? No, but the Senate Sergeant of Arms had to arrest both men to prevent the duel, put them in jail, and find them $5,000 in order to get everybody to cool down. Wow. And then cooler heads did prevail, and you know they both apologized to each other. So this was kind of in the waning days of the popularity of the actual duel as a way of solving. But that was the go-to way that the most powerful people in America would solve their problem. Who should be the printer? Well, I guess we'll have to shoot each other, and the survivor can <laughs> shoot. <laughs> that's, how, that's how little confidence in our problem-solving abilities we have. Uh, it was not the only time... William Rufus King was challenged to a duel. And here we start to get into one of the two kind of interesting, juicy things about his life for modern audiences in the, or, you know, future ones as well. In the 1830s, a local planter in Alabama named Michael Keenan gave some saucy insult to King in the Mm -hmm. streets of Cahaba, Alabama, which so incensed King that he had to pull the dagger from his cane. Sure. Uh, so another thing about King is he had a he had a sword cane apparently. Right. Who doesn't? Uh, to address the grievance. Now we don't know what the context of the illness was, but given the rumors that were already circulating, or the con- context of the insult. Sorry. Yes. You said in illness. No. Ill- oh, that's a little <laughs> a little Freudian slip. There is an illness coming. We don't know what the context of the insult was, but given the rumors that were already circulating in Washington, it may have something to do with King's reputation. Hmm. As a prim wig-topped mediocrity, <laughs> he was a snappy dresser. He uh, he was often the kind of Southern planter you'd see in, you know, silk scarves and velvet mm. gloves and, you know, gleaming emerald uh, tie pin and uh, sure, know, this all, was, all kinds of fancy accessories. We think of everybody then dressing pretty fancy, but even within the realm of everybody being fancy, you could still be super fancy. And there was a political component to your fanciness back then. Really? In that, and it's really counterintuitive to us, in that having that kind of uh, demeanor, the foppish clothing, the soft hands of a planter, really marked you as a certain kind of Southern conservative on issues like slavery. I see it. What You were a gentleman. You didn't work for a living, unlike the grubby mercantile 
uh, class of a senator from, say, Maine. Right. But the funny thing is the, po- the politics of it were switched. The grubby working class were the northern abolitionists, the progressives. Right. And the, uh, you know, the, the ones on the right of the issue were the, the effete, decadent southerners who had never done a day's work in their life. To the degree that when uh, the insult among abolitionists for northerners who, who favored slavery was dough faces. Uh-huh. They didn't have beards. They had soft, doughy faces and, and ruddy cheeks and several chins. Uh-huh. And so that was the marker of a the marker of a good liberal was to be a dough face. No. Oh. Was to be was to have a, a big beard and oh, to be a rough hewn working class type. Oh, I see. Well now how did Andrew Jackson figure into this? His uh his tough uh, gnarled fingered woodsman caricature. That's true. Uh, he would very much have, maybe he predated this, you know, he predated the, uh, sure. He was quite early in this. He would have been, he definitely would have been before the, uh, the invention of the, the, not the invention of the beard, but the fashion of the beard in American politics. Right. Cause think about Abraham Lincoln, you know, the first thing he does when he's suddenly the face of the Republican party and the face of abolitionists, he grows a beard, grows a beard because that's what a good progressive looks like. Right. Well, and the, and the idea of a Southern planter being, uh, having soft hands. I mean, that dates back to the very founding of our country. The idea that those were aristocratic people. Sure. And that probably goes back to Europe as well. It does. You know, yeah. It would be a mark of class not to have calluses like a peon. But you're saying King was even over the top. Yes. In this world. And there is reason to believe that he wasn't just a, you know, a, a decadent effete Southerner there is reason to believe that he was being insulted because of rumors that were swirling about his relationship with none other than future president James Buchanan. You're saying that this street insult was like an off-color comment about his sexuality? Many believe that it could have been a remark about his masculinity. Ooh. Because there are we do have record of people in Washington sort of sniggering about him being a, a 16-year roommate of affirmed bachelor and future president James Buchanan, uh, no less than Andrew Jackson, I believe, called them Aunt Fancy and Miss Nancy. It's <laughs> not cool, Andrew uh, Jackson. Miss, Miss Nancy still, to our day, futurelings, is a, well, until recent times, was a slur in popular parlance to describe someone in middle age who was who was a confirmed bachelor, I guess, in quotes. These two confirmed bachelors did live together for 16 years. James Buchanan... And William Rufus King were roommates. Yes. And they were seen together so much that they were, the joke around town was that they were called Siamese twins. Now, James Buchanan had a cover story. As a young man in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, he had romanced young Anne Coleman, the prettiest woman in town, the daughter of a prominent musket manufacturer. But she became convinced that he was not sufficiently affectionate toward her, that he was only interested in her for money and status. I see. And she broke off the engagement. Uh-huh. Now, I don't want you to read too much into this. One of the things she was worried about is he was spending a lot of time with other female households in town. Uh-huh. So we don't know whether he's actually playing the field or maybe he's just one of these young drama club guys who has a lot of female <laughs> friends, uh-huh. you know? Uh-huh. <laughs> but in any case, she feels that he's not as affectionate as an ardent young man should be. She ends the engagement. He bounces back. She possibly commits suicide. Oh, dear. She is dead of what doctors term hysteria. Yeah. Within a few weeks. In our time, we know that hysteria is not a real thing. It's just uh, something that male doctors said about female patients. So she 
broke off the engagements and then was dead of hysteria within weeks. Right. Wow. And scandal. Uh, you know, hysteria, you know, his, the doctor said, yes, she's dead of hysterical convulsions. Super weird. Right. Now, this is the thing is hysterical convulsions. Hysteria means of the uterus. And it was like the R word hysterectomy. Right. And it was just a way of saying. Uh, that she's a woman. This, this woman's kind of over the top. Let's give her some laudanum. Right. And in fact, she did probably die of an overdose of laudanum. What we don't know is if the doctor administered it or if she did. But for the rest of his life, Buchanan always said that he could never marry because of a memory of his dear departed Ann Coleman, who thought he was not that into her. Oh, so he now, he, his cover story was not just that he had wooed a woman, but that he now could could adopt the cover of uh, Eternal Mourn. Heartbroken man ah. who lost his one true love. And what did... What did and uh, I'm what certainly did, not postulating that he went to Philadelphia and gave her an overdose of laudanum, although that... That is a great idea. No, that seems unlikely. I'm, I'm, I don't know what kind of alibi he has. You've, you've now raised a good question, which is why are people not still addicted to laudanum? I guess it's hard it to get. It sounds great, right? O- it's of. what, it's opium? It's a, a, call, it's a solution of opium in alcohol? Yeah. You could just dip your handkerchief in it and spend, I guess it's because people don't use handkerchiefs anymore. <laughs> right. That's the only thing <laughs> keeping the laudanum, the laudanoid <laughs> epidemic down in rural America. <laughs> the lack of a clean hanky. Have you always wanted to learn to play an instrument? Maybe you've even tried at some point, but gave up because you felt lessons were too expensive or that you just didn't have the time. Thankfully, there's Musician. Musician is the fun, easy, and affordable way to learn guitar, piano, bass, ukulele, and even singing. Just download the app to your desktop, tablet, or phone and start playing. Musician gives you 24-7 access to a vast catalog of video lessons from professionally trained educators, as well as thousands of exercises and songs across dozens of music genres, all tailored to your goals. And with Musician's award-winning technology that listens to you play, you'll get real-time feedback on timing and accuracy so you can actually see yourself improving as you learn. Start your extended 14-day free trial of Musician's Premium Plus package at musician.com start. That's unlimited access to thousands of lessons, exercises, and songs on as many instruments as you want for two whole weeks. Just go to musician.com slash start. That's Y-O-U-S-I-C-I-A-N dot com slash start. So did William Rufus King never marry? Did he have no convincing cover story? He had no cover story at all. Never married, never had kids, never linked with anyone except for Poor sad James Buchanan. James Buchanan, by the way, kept his letters from Ann Coleman his whole life wrapped in a pink ribbon with strict instructions to his executors that they be burned upon his death, mm. which they were. Hmm. However, we do have some correspondence between Buchanan and King. When King was off in the court of King Louis or whoever in France, they exchanged letters back and forth, some of which are still extant or extant, as you would probably say. <laughs> extant? Because he's in France. Extant The letters are ex- <laughs> uh, In which Buchanan writes King, quote, I am now solitary and alone, having no companion in the house with me. I have gone a-wooing to several gentlemen, but have not succeeded with any of them. Hmm. Now, we can't read too much into that because the language was very different and you could potentially woo a gentleman friend? Well, that's what's often said, you know, by people who are saying, you know, homosociality was very different back then just because Buchanan and King would walk hand in hand down J Street. Wait, there is no J Street. Down, there is a J Street. Down K Street. Which one is there not? Oh, there is a K Street. So I guess there is no J Street? I don't know. Maybe well, it's I? Our knowledge of uh, Washington geography is really, really Hopefully in the future right they've now. solved this and they have put in the 26th Street, <laughs> maybe even if it's just a little alley bisecting a previous block. 
Even though those guys would walk hand in hand together, there were different cultural mores of the time. And that's certainly true. When I was a kid in Korea, you would still see businessmen walking hand in hand because there was no social taboo against it. It's certainly true now in Slavic countries and in Turkic countries. You see it quite a bit. I'm a little skeptical, however. It seems like an easy way to erase homosexuality in the past. So there is no J Street in Washington. Okay. Uh, you were correct. But I, I think it's very hard to look back in time and uh, for instance, diagnose people who potentially had uh, bipolar disorder. We do this all say. the time. Yeah. Oh boy, Leonardo da Vinci was autist, autistic. Yeah. That sure uh, empowers me. Yeah, that's really hard for us to do. But of course, we know that there have always been homosexuals in, in public life who have held positions of power and who have been instrumental in civic life and in the and, arts. And if they were in a society where it was just taken as given, that that was a, uh, a biblical perversion. But at the same time, and I think this is another mistake we make in modern times, uh, homosexuality was understood to be, I mean, it, people were aware of it and it was a thing that people knew about one another. They just didn't, there were euphemisms used. The whole idea of there being confirmed bachelors that's language that goes back hundreds of years as a euphemistic way of describing it. It just wasn't, you couldn't be out. But what I'm saying is, yeah, exactly. So we're saying the same thing. Some of these confirmed bachelors actually were uh, living with their uh, longtime companions. Publicly living and publicly like in, in every way, everybody knew, let's call it that. Everybody right. knew. So I, I, I don't, I don't see it as being very hard to retroactively say, let's just say that James Buchanan was, a gay president. If two to three percent of American men are gay, we have had what forty-four presidents, forty-five presidents. That's right. So the odds would be against all of them being straight, surely. Well, particularly not when one of them is a thirteen-year roommate of such a handsome man as William R. King. By the way, he, uh, King wrote back to Buchanan from France. I am selfish enough to hope you will not be able to procure an associate who will cause you to feel no regret at our separation. Oh, yeah. Like, I mean, it's very... Don't get a new boyfriend. It's very easy to read these as love letters. Sure. Well, and, and you're saying that there was correspondence burned at their death? Well, the correspondence burned was between Buchanan and Coleman, in which presumably she was franker about her issues with their relationship, or maybe he was franker with his reservations. I see. Um, but you're thinking she might have sent him several letters like you like... You like, yeah. uh, why are you always out when my, <laughs> when my brother is, uh, pumping water or whatever. So, you know, so he had he, the duel with Keenan never actually happened, but rumors were certainly afoot both at home and in DC. The King was what we would call today a gay man. And, uh, in fact, the funniest thing about the story is there was a movement in the democratic party. There's an expectation that in 1844, Buchanan and King would run for the presidency and vice presidency together, which in hindsight would make them the first gay couple in the executive branch in American history. Right. What a what a much better story than uh, than the one that resulted. What if they passed sweeping, uh, you know, uh, progressive legislation for LGBT rights in the mid 1840s? You know, imagine this nice DC couple that you always see out walking their Bichons or or at the farmers market, and suddenly they're just moving into the White House together. <laughs> <laughs> As president and vice president, it very nearly happened. And what kept it from happening? The short answer, as in so many questions in American history, James K. Polk. Oh, here he comes again, James so, K. Polk out of nowhere. So tired of that guy ruining everything. In 1844, the Democrats were split. The three nominees for the presidential candidate. 
the Democratic Party was very divided between the Southern and Northern branches. It was hard to see a way forward. No candidate could get a majority. In the end, James K. Polk became the first dark horse candidate and then president in American history. Some guy who didn't, wasn't up for the nomination, nobody thought should be president, but was the only guy everybody could agree with on the 16th ballot or whatever. Isn't that amazing? Obviously, we don't do that anymore. So James K. Polk, not only a dark horse, but, you know, cock blocking the first uh, gay friendly White House. Right. And you notice uh, as you go across America, very few elementary schools named Polk. There are a lot of McKinley elementary schools. There are a lot of uh, Buchanan elementaries, but hardly any Polks. Which is sad for the inventor of the polka dot. I'm just kidding. He was not the inventor of the polka dot. (laughs) Um, but, you know, individually, King and Buchanan both did go on to the executive branch. Um, Buchanan famously, in 1856, overseeing really a no-end situation, although I don't think he managed it particularly well, the uh, possible end of the union. Right. And King in 1852. Um, again, the Democratic Party didn't know who to go with. In the end, Franklin Pierce is nominated for the presidency, largely on the strength of being from New Hampshire, and they felt it was their turn. Well, yeah, and this is sort of the Missouri Compromise problem, too. It's like, well, it's... Can't, I guess, be, a, can't be a Southerner. I guess or... we're going to bring a Southern state in for every Northern state, and I guess we ought to have a Northern president every other time. That's exactly what happened. Zachary Taylor had died, leaving Millard Fillmore, not a compelling figure then as now, in the White House. <laughs> um, New Hampshire thought, you know, we're the, we're the most rock-hard Democrats. There's never been a New Hampshire Democrat as president. It's Franklin Pierce's turn. He was a very uh, handsome young man, handsome Frank, they called him. Mm-hmm. Uh, women couldn't vote yet, but I guess for a voter like King, maybe that's a plus. Uh, unfortunately, not a great president. Franklin Pierce did not want to be president. When his wife found out, she was very unhappy that he'd been nominated. He was an alcoholic. Two of their boys had died in tragic circumstances. And oh. the third, at 11 years old, this is going to be a sad part of the entry, mm dies in a gruesome train crash right in front of Franklin and Jane Pierce shortly before he's about to take office. Uh, Franklin is unable to keep Jane from seeing the near decapitation that killed their 11-year-old son. Oh, my goodness. So she is just a wreck the whole time he's president. He's not much better. The fact that he died of cirrhosis later means we know he's drinking heavily. I, you know, his most famous legacy, of course, and I'm sure this, is, uh, this will be true of futurelings, they will know his, his name will... Be very familiar to him. It will ring out in, in uh, Pierce Land, which is the, <laughs> the name of the country we're giving these entries to. But also he was the namesake of Hawkeye Pierce uh, from the eternal television show MASH. Hawkeye was named Benjamin Franklin Pierce by his father, but then called Hawkeye after his father's favorite novel, The Last of the Mohicans. I like how American history buff John Roderick, I'm all ready for him to, I'm all ready for him to have something interesting to say about Franklin Pierce. It's that Hawkeye Pierce <laughs> is named for him. Thanks, John. That's very helpful. Yeah, of course. Um, Pierce's vice president would have been William Rufus King running on the ticket with him. At the time, it was not, it was not seemed seemly to campaign. Hmm. So Pierce, oh, sure. Pierce just stayed home in New Hampshire. Um, King did campaign some small amount in the South. However, he started, he had a cough that started to get worse and worse. And as the campaign neared its close, he was diagnosed with tuberculosis. 
which at the time he was a he was a pioneer of tuberculosis. There wasn't a cure for tuberculosis except like convalescence. Yes, convalescence, and you would treat it by sending someone to a warm climate. And his doctor recommended Cuba. Oh, sure, at nice the, place at the time. Not the workers' paradise of today or the party casino style <laughs> spot. Batista it, era. It is in uh, yeah Godfather Part Two. Um, it's just kind of a sleepy little island full of white people ordering the natives around on coffee and sugar plantations sure. with nice weather. So he gets sent to a friend's coffee plantation to get better, but the cough gets worse and worse. Oh dear. So, so he's in Cuba when the Pierce King ticket wins election and he becomes the 13th vice president elect of the United States. Unlucky no 13. Kidding. Yeah. He's not even in the country. Wow. No one knows what to do. There's no precedent for this. Congress has to pass special legislation allowing him to be sworn in in Cuba. <laughs> which, Imagine that happening today. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> I'm sorry. Uh, Mike Pence does not want to leave uh, yeah. Thailand. <laughs> He's on the beach at Phuket with a bunch of, of very friendly houseboys, and he does not want to come yeah, home. He has a weird cough. So the USS Fulton is dispatched to Havana Harbor to bring him home whenever he gets better, but he doesn't get better. So finally, Congress just says, all right, like it's, it's already mid-March. Franklin Pierce has been inaugurated weeks ago. Right. But per the Constitution, William Rufus Devane King is the sitting vice president in America, a heartbeat away if, if Franklin Pierce uh, drinks too much tonight and falls off a White House balcony. And Which he's, uh, <laughs> it's not that far-fetched. He could have been tossing some night soil <laughs> off the Truman balcony and, uh, and off he goes. And here sits William Rufus coughing up a lung in Cuba and it becomes increasingly clear he's not going to get better. He finally is inaugurated. So he's, he's uh, constitutionally the vice president from March 4th on. He has not been inaugurated. Finally, they have somebody swear him in on March 20-something, weeks later. In Cuba still? In, in Cuba, yeah, wow. on, this, uh, on the Limonar uh, sugar plantation which, by the way, got, I think, bombed during the Spanish-American War, but you can still wander through its ruins today if you're interested in, you know, little-known, if you're unearthing little-known facts of, of gay American history mm -hmm. in your tourism. He uh, finally decides that he wants, if he's going to die, he wants to die in his beloved Alabama plantation. So he boards the USS Fulton, heads home to Mobile and then upriver, getting worse and worse. They they break speed records heading up the Mobile River. He finally arrives on April 18th at Chestnut Hill. I'm sure is uh, welcomed by all his slaves doing their traditional <laughs> pretending to be happy to see you <laughs> thing that you see in Roots. He's back. Yay, this guy. <laughs> and uh, dies the next evening. Wow. Less than 24 hours later. I wonder how often that actually, it, it seems like that happens a lot where someone says, I'm going to wait until my grandchildren get here and then they die, you know, immediately. It seems like we have, we do have the ability as human beings to kind of postpone Forced our death. death. Yeah. Right. Cause you'd think the bumpy, uh, ocean and river trip would be what kills a very sick man, but no, he's hanging in there. He wants to get home. I think you can prove it with statistical information. Like you can look and see when in the calendar year people die relative to their birthdays. Oh. And many people who die of old age, there's a statistical bump shortly after their birthday. Interesting. They make it. They make it all the way to 91. And I think you can see, a, yeah, I think you can see a, a bump after 100 as well for the same reason. Somebody's been hanging in there to be a centenarian. It's like, yeah, what's the next thing? <laughs> I'm going to make 200? It. <laughs> yeah, pass. A, a thousand? <laughs> Probably not going to happen. 
So that's the sad story of uh, William Rufus Devane King, the 13th vice president of the United States, possibly an underappreciated gay icon, certainly the least effective vice president we've ever had, unless, as John Nance Gardner held, the job of the vice president is to do nothing, in which case he was the perfect veep. Well, I wonder if in the time he and James Buchanan were regarded as pioneers, you know, it would be impossible to to know because no one would have written that down, right? That would have been slander to actually put to the page in any way other than derisively. But I wonder, you know, I wonder if like the gay men of, of America at the time were proud of him as a political leader. It would have been a local phenomenon, right? There's, you know, there's no instrument for national or regional gossip, right? But there was... There would you, have you been. Think there's an underground whisper uh, chain. Absolutely, and I think there would have been a lot of signaling that maybe we wouldn't be able to perceive this far back in time. But signaling of a certain sort, a certain word choice used by reporters of the day that would have meant a lot more to people then. It's you know it's another thing that's impossible to decode, but certainly something to maybe uh, wistfully imagine. And that concludes William Rufus King. Entry 688.LK1734. Certificate number 39087 in the Omnibus. Futurelings, it seems unlikely that social media still exists in your era because I'm thinking about quitting Twitter tomorrow. It is certainly the scourge of our era. You know, there are lots and lots of studies of social media now documenting, well, Facebook did this famous secret experiment where they preloaded happy news into some people's feeds and sad news into other people's feeds and then looked at their own posts to see whether they were happy or sad. And it was pretty dramatic. I like how Facebook straight up knows they're evil. Yeah, Facebook's just not even following the rules at all. We put laudanum in half of the <laughs> handkerchiefs in America. But I, I find it true of my own self that when I stay away from social media, my outlook improves. Think of the mild happiness you get at a good joke on Twitter versus just the day-ruining effect of one mean tweet. Yeah, one mean tweet or just being, you know, just the constant, like, degrading feeling of being just exposed to the news. You are blessed. Even if you live in a radioactive wasteland, listeners, you are blessed to be free of this terrible plague. I mean, you probably have other literal plagues, but yeah. at least this metaphorical one is, is, has been spared. They, in fact, may be a plague. They may be uh, futurelings only because they uh, they destroyed everything on the planet. Kind of like we. <laughs> we. We are speaking to sentient uh, iterations of the hepatitis virus. Right. As as a sentient plague ourselves, we welcome you, future hepatitis listeners. We, we were once the caterpillar chewing up the leaf. <laughs> Thank you for inheriting our world. For those uh, listening who do have social media, first of all, we apologize. But second of all, we would uh, love you to come visit us at Omnibus Project, basically across all media. Uh, that would be at Omnibus Project on Twitter, at Omnibus Project on Instagram. And also we have a Facebook group, which is called the Futurelings on Facebook, Omnibus Futurelings. You can find them there. Ken and I have Twitter handles under our own names, at Ken Jennings, at John Roderick. 
and our email address, which we encourage you to write to. We encourage you to which write. <laughs> to which we encourage <laughs> your correspondence. Yes. Don't tell us if you're wooing other gentlemen. Uh, is we, omnibus, we won't like it. Omnibus Project at HowStuffWorks.com. Remember to leave in the E when you tweet at John Roderick. That's if, right. If you tweet at John Roderick without the E, you get a novelty count I have set up <laughs> in which I pretend to be a version of John who pronounces his name more sensibly. Anyone knows how my name is pronounced because it's right there, Roderick. <laughs> Listeners, as ever, we speak to you from a far distant vantage point in your far distant past. We have no idea how long our civilization survives or how long the memory of it even survives. This may be all that is left. We hope and pray that no cataclysm awaits us, that the catastrophe we fear may never come. But if it comes soon, this recording, like all our recordings, may be a final word. But we hope that's not true. We hope that fate will allow us to be back with you soon for another entry in the Omnibus. Omnibus.